0: What's up everybody? Welcome to the Napkin Game Plan. Super psyched for you to hear this first episode. I'm a little biased because it's me. Um but I want to give you an introduction to who I am, my come up story, and why we started this podcast. Welcome everybody to the Napkin Game Plan podcast. So, uh first podcast episode. So, we've got a lot of questions Um, as I've talked about the podcast with friends, with people that we've interviewed to come on the show, uh, about why, why the napkin game plan, why did we pick that name and why am I starting a podcast? So, you know, when I look at, at media and, and the the realm, I think the one place my personal brand and in business I haven't really capitalized on or been involved in is audio do a lot of video content, write a lot of content. Audio has been the place where, where I've been lacking. And um, I feel like I have a lot that I want to say, and there's people that I want to have conversations with. Um, in a podcast, it makes sense. Um, so the, the gist of the podcast, I really want to be about entrepreneurship, but not in not as much entrepreneurship as in where are you now success stories, but the origin story I love to hear about the failures and how people have overcome the failures and how the first seven businesses didn't work. And then they found the one that that has got them to the place where they're at now. Because I think so much of entrepreneurship now is so glamorized, like it is is the path of ultimate freedom. And yes, entrepreneurship gives you freedom, but you're also a slave to it in, in a sense where it captivates all of your emotion, all of your energy, all of your being, um, all of your time. So it, are you getting more freedom when when you choose that path? So I really want to dig into that. And and with our guests, we're going to ask about their origin short stories and, and talk with them. And so the reason we chose or I chose Napkin Game Plan for the podcast was simply because in my experience, a lot of business ideas are just written on the back of napkins at a bar, at a at a cocktail party, at a networking event. Um, I've been a part of conversations where business plans have been scribbled on the back of napkins. And I, I think every entrepreneur kind of has that story or that moment where they wrote down something, they were having a conversation, there was a trigger that kicked them down the path of the next idea. And so many times the napkin is centralized in that. So um, I I want to give you just some context, some some background story on me. And uh, I brought on a guest for this first episode that's really going to kind of help articulate the story and ask me some questions. Um, so I'm just not rambling on and on, uh, but you get some context and some value out of this first episode and, and some insight to, to where we're going. So that is... My man Eli Gable, um, you can follow him on Instagram and TikTok. He's somewhat of a TikTok uh, youth group, famous uh, on TikTok. So um, I'll just get kind of started with my origin story. Um, I grew up in a town that uh, is crazy small. And when I say crazy small, no, it's not smaller than anywhere else in the world, but less than a thousand people. 47 kids in my graduating class but i only think 44 graduated uh one stoplight in the town everybody knew everybody just cliche kick a field goal too long on our high school football field you lost the ball in the cornfield um just that is the environment that i grew up in so entrepreneurship was not this just immense conversation like i i don't think i really understood what the word entrepreneur went meant until probably i was 17 or 18 in high school um and and i i didn't grow up in a family that was like thoroughbred entrepreneurs my dad's a, a public educator educator uh has been in education for 30 plus years was the principal of the elementary school and, and a teacher at the middle school for years while i was in school and that's a PhD in, in, in leadership. So entrepreneurship was not didn't we didn't want to have any business owners in the family. Um, my dad was a bit of a hustler when we were growing up. He did like do world book sales door to door and some things to to make some extra money in in the summertime and, and bring cash flow into the family. But um, you know, I, I kind of feel like I was entrepreneurial from day one without really knowing what it what it meant. And I think that's kind of the first point I wanna make about entrepreneurship is I don't think that entrepreneurship is something that that you can be taught i really feel that it's a fabric of somebody's dna um they just may not know that it's there and, and there's something that triggers that entrepreneurial drive in them and i think from an early age before i knew what entrepreneurship was or you know i mean honestly if, if, if someone had told me at 10 years old that i I could punt everything related to education and not had to go to college and like it really didn't matter. I could just do what I wanted to do if I if I was good enough at it. Um I think that I probably would have got to this point in life a whole lot faster than I did kind of going the traditional route and and figuring it out. So um you know, I I think from an early age I, I had entrepreneur tendencies. Um typically if I wanted something I would figure out a way to get it. And and, you know, I, I grew up where I think we got a dollar a day for an allowance, um, which, you know, wasn't a ton of money. And I think it may have started out at like a quarter or fifty cents or something like that and eventually got to a dollar when I was when I was younger. But um I remember getting these things in the mail which were like fundraisers that weren't associated with any type of sports team or um um, bitty league or anything like that it was this this thing that would come I can't even tell you what it was called but I remember selling door-to-door wrapping paper and like meat and cheese tray things and my parents let me do this which was awesome on, on their part to kind of let me run with it and the cool thing was like what got me intrigued was I could flip through this magazine and it was kind of like when you go to a game room and, and you're looking at what you can get for the the tickets that you win. That This was basically it. So for the, the amount of selling that you did and the number of products that you sold, you earned points, and the points allowed you to cash those in to, to, to get whatever the prize was. And there was a gumball fish tank. And it was a miniature gumball machine in the globe where the gumballs would go was a fish tank and I really, really wanted this thing. And I cannot remember for the life of me what it costs or, I mean, it, it couldn't have been like, if you went to Walmart, it couldn't have been more than like a seven ninety three item or something like crazy like that. So, um, but I remember going door to door to sell wrapping paper and meat and cheese trays to get enough points to win this gumball machine. And I got it and it leaked and it was sucky. And, but it was the fact that at, at that young age, like Saw a goal of something that I wanted to achieve. Figured out the path to go get that, and that led into in in middle school, um, convincing my mom to go to Sam's Club and buy the the not for resale packs of gum and and flipping those for fifty cents out of my locker. Um, having the thought of buying all of the pencils in the pencil machine. That way, there was I could run a monopoly on the pencil game. <laughs> So like when when someone was without a pencil, they could go to the pencil machine for 25 cents, but if it's out of order because there's no pencils and I can flip it for 50 cents. Did you get in trouble cents, for that ever? It was um it it, 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 it was an unspoken punishment. <laughs> like a, the racket was snuffed out quickly. So like the that was kind of my entrepreneur how, how to quick kind of make a quick buck. And, and it wasn't about ripping people off or or doing things dishonest. Like there was all honesty about it. Like, you know, probably the biggest take home was uh, a NCAA poll where, you know, I was playing the bookie and people could buy a bracket, but a portion of their bracket costs went to the greater good of the pot of my time of (laughs) running the basketball poll. Um, And then I ended up winning the whole pot anyway. So that was fantastic. Um, Just, like simple things like that and uh, really kind of where entrepreneurship really took off for me is we took those a test when I was a senior in high school. I think it's called the ASFAB test. I don't know if that's – I remember taking that test. I don't know if this is the correct one. But it told me that I should be an electrician. And no pun intended, a light ball went off that like this path of being a journeyman and then getting an electrician's license was not – like. I just dis- I didn't see that education was something that it wasn't allowed to be punted because my dad was an educator so I had to get decent grades in high school I thought my vein of existence in high school was simply to play sports um, you know I made A's and B's because a C would get me in trouble and I had to have grades to play play sports so you know it's something that I did college was I wanted to go to college to get out of the house I wanted to go to college to to, to experience people. Um, But I didn't want to go to college for the school. And and when I got to school, all I could think about was the business that I was running when I got out of high school. And and I met a guy, happenstance, um, my senior year. And he said, look, I got a sports marketing company. I'm looking for a partner. Why don't you check it out? It's sales related. I was deathly afraid to speak in front of people. Um, I would have to take a nerve pill. But I had a speech class my senior year of high school where six weeks we had to give a, every week a different type of speech to our peers. Um, and it was just, it really, it, it was nerve wracking and I hated every second of it, but it was probably the most valuable thing that I've ever gone through. If I look back at all 18 years I was in school, or thirteen, however many freaking years you go to school, All the years that I was in school, the the single most valuable thing was that six weeks in Miss Caniff's English class where I had to give a speech and write a speech and and persuasion and and all these different types of speeches. It was totally dynamite. And it's probably shaped who I was because I was really good at it, even though I was insanely nervous to do it.
1: Um, So you went from talking to people door to door, selling things to buy fish tanks. And then so you took that. And it was still something that you're kind of scared of, but then you go into high school, you're taking the speech class. And then what this all kind of, you know, if you fast forward through the story, you're, you end up becoming an old demand speaker for the funeral profession. Yeah. For business and marketing. So like, yeah. Focus on that. Like, what are some other things? Like whenever you're doing your like mafia and thug style bubblegum businesses and stuff like that, what are some of those principles that ended up carrying into like where you are now? uh definitely just the ask like i think that is entrepreneurship
0: like it, where you're not going to be the best at every facet of the business like you, you may not be the best salesperson you may not be the best manager you may not be the best operations person um but for me like i think i found a niche in being able to just cold call Not necessarily have the ask, but be able to present something in a way that was valuable that I could go in for the ask. And I still think I'm bad at the ask, um, but I think that that the fear of being eight years old and knocking on somebody's door and having no idea how they're going to react and then being able to give enough value that they don't slam the door in your face Mm -hmm. at eight years old. I had being a kid on my side, and most people wouldn't slam the door on a kid, but... Yeah, I think that's probably the takeaway is just getting comfortable with the introduction and having the conversation. And then the speech class really was more about confidence in my ability to actually be up in front of a group and talk. Um, And when I tell you I got nervous, it was like up the night before, throwing up, Mm. taking the nerve pill before class, like have a bottle of water sitting with me and class, like just insanely nervous to the fact where I didn't want anything to do with it. And then seeing the reward and how good I felt after like just the confidence level that I got of, man, I hate doing this, but I'm pretty good at it and I'm starting to kind of like it with, with believe me as, as a senior in high school, there was not one single ounce of me that thought that i would be giving speeches for a living and giving keynotes like not a chance mm-hmm. not a chance. that was the furthest thing off my- i would rather have been the electrician <laughs> uh, uh, when i was 18 and if you would ask me that so yeah i think that those those two major takeaways like the just the hustle and the grind of not giving up and knowing if i if i had to get 10 i had to sell 10 packages of wrapping paper to get that bubble gum machine and one purchase took 10 houses then i knew that sweet we're in it we got to go we have to see a minimum of 100 houses to Mm -hmm. make this work and so i think that drive you know equates to my journey as an entrepreneur and an owner now from a sales process like i know x amount of demos is going to equal x amount of clients and if we got a goal of this you know i've got to do a thousand demos to get to that that goal so you know, how are we going to line those demos up? Now right. let's start stacking the pipeline. Um, so I think there's some intangibles. I'm glad you asked that question because I never really go deep into that. And I've never really thought about it in that perspective. But I think that those are the, the two big takeaways were just the, the massive, like the, the one the, you had to just get started.
1: Right. And then what you had to do at that point to, to equal the goal. So and then also what we're seeing through this, and we'll get you back to the story you were about to tell. So we're seeing you have kind of this just this natural spark that you have, and then all these things that you're going through, you're just kind of honing it, and then that'll eventually lead to where you are now, and then further down the line, it's going to lead to where you end up. But back to kind of that process of honing it, so you're saying you were in high school, you met a guy, and he wanted to bring you on in the business, right?
0: Yeah, so I, I, I totally believe in divine intervention, and I believe that my entire life God has had his thumb on on. on the path that I've taken. Um, and there's been things that have happened in my life where in that moment I'm like, what the heck? Like, why? Like, like quick example, uh, probably the most daunting, um, speech that I had to give in that senior speech writing class was a persuasion speech. And so I, I did my speech on the book, Lord liar, lunatic, that God was either who he said he was he was a liar or he was insanely crazy. Hmm. So I, I presented the argument that God was who he said he was. And I feel like I, I, I nailed that speech and it was fantastic. And I went to basketball practice that night, the night before our home opener, my senior year, basically what you play 12 years of basketball to get to. Right. Uh, and I broke my ankle that night in practice. And, you know, in that moment, I'm like, God, why? Why is like, what's the deal? um but now when i look back like there was an easy path where god was guiding me, like a, there's there's footprints where god was guiding me down and if i didn't go that path things would have been different and mm-hmm. and it's led to where we're at so um there was a girl that was in my class that uh her mom had had cancer and she'd been out of school for a couple days and uh so i stopped by where she worked and popped in and just to say hey and uh see our mom was doing and there was a guy sitting in there and she introduced me to him and he said look he's like do you love sports i said yeah i love sports that's really the only reason i go to school is because one my parents make me and two i can play sports otherwise this is pointless (laughs) and uh he said well check this out and he he had a company building high school sports websites and he said look i'm i'm just starting this i need a salesperson and someone to kind of come alongside me and i'm like man i don't know i've never done sales i i'm probably not your guy but look, I love the concept. I'm an athlete. It'd be great if our school had a website. I mean, this was 2001. So websites were like not like most businesses didn't have one. Most K-12 schools didn't have a website. If you did, it was like the old just text-based. There was no sports coverages or anything like that. And so I I went out with this guy for a day, took a college day and didn't go to college. actually just went out (laughs) in the streets and went door to door. And that's all this guy was doing. And it related back to just what I did with wrapping paper it was just now I was selling banner ads on a website and mm. and um so I I immediately fell in love with that and the the adrenaline of being in the pitch and it was a game like it was it was a, it got to the point where how quickly could I get in and out of a business and I would I would take salespeople on the road with me that i was training and like ready go time me and (laughs) you know by the end of the day if you could get in and out in three minutes with a yes then you know you won so um it was a numbers game and, and i loved it so i i did that uh for for the summer before i went to college went to college managed uh three salespeople from from my dorm room um spent every free moment i had like honing the sales pitch and still working leads and and when i went home for for school on break like working and i was making you know at the time like to be 18 and and pull in you know two g's a week selling ads in college (laughs) when most people were eating ramen noodles every meal like it was it was baller status to a to a degree right? yeah it was great it was motivating um, and I probably had some of the wrong motivators in that time but uh, eventually after my freshman year of school I I dropped out of school became a partner in the company and you know did that for the next three years and really learned what an entrepreneur was and learned that when business is slow you don't eat and, and you don't get paid and mm. you're you're the last to get paid everybody else gets their money first and You know, it learned how to run a business the wrong way um, and learned a lot about myself from a from a a practical standpoint as a business owner of the type of company that I wanted to build.
1: Nice. So like right there, something that you just said is like whenever you're an entrepreneur, you know, if if the business isn't doing well, you're not you're not eating. Yeah. You know, so um, a lot of people, that's wherever they stop with the business is, you know, that first time it's low. Sounds to me like whenever you came into this business, you were you were getting those sales in like less than three minutes. Do you think you would have stuck with it even if that first phase of this whole entrepreneur journey was that phase wherever, hey, I'm not I'm not doing well? Um I think I would have stuck
0: with it um on the entrepreneur path. Like would I continue to do the same thing? No. But I think the freedom that I had working for myself, like Nobody made me get up at 6 a.m. No one mm-hmm. made me go to bed at 3 a.m. Like, no one made me do the things that I did to be successful in that job, and that's what I liked. I didn't mm-hmm. like, you know, I, I didn't want to have to answer to somebody, and and I liked being able to make my decisions. So the freedom in that regard. But also, yeah, like, if, you know, sales were bad for a week and you're 100% commission-based – everybody else is going to get their commission before I get mine as, as the owner. So, you know, entrepreneurship is, is not for the faint of heart. It's not easy. Um, It, it, you know, there, there, there have been between that journey and and that business to where we are now, there's been four other things that have started and failed that nobody knows about. Mm -hmm. And, and there's this perception that entrepreneurs are like overnight successes where, you know, we hear about Zucks being a billionaire after a couple of years, but Zucks failed at a number of things prior to being Zucks. So like most entrepreneurs, we don't hear about the failures and it's not an overnight success. And there's, there's a uh, there's a rap line. I'm, I'm not going to remember the rapper. It, it, like everybody calls it an overnight success. It took 10 years to get here. Mm. Oh, it took 10 years to get here, but I'm an overnight success. I forget. I think it was Big Sean. Not okay, hundred percent sure, but and that's true. Like we only see when people make it. We don't see when they fail, 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 right. fail, fail. The hundred thousand no's and and that's just it. It becomes a numbers game, and and just like going door to door with wrapping paper, going door to door with with cold calling on ads, or with what I do now, you know, doing demos. There's a goal of a number that we got to get to, and it's just a it's just a, an equation of how many you got to see to get the number of yeses that you need to to get to the goal. So, um, yeah, so, so that business, I, I worked it for three years, sold out of my partnership. Um, you know, most entrepreneurs don't want to go work for somebody. And, you know, I had the opportunity why I tried to figure out kind of what was next to go work for, for my father-in-law and, That got me a taste of the funeral profession. And had I not taken that position, then I wouldn't be here kind of doing what we're doing right now. Um, It led me down a path where I found a passion with funeral homes. And it's interesting because when I was doing the ad sales years prior, whenever I would get into a town, the first business I would go see was a funeral home. Hmm. Because they always supported the local school, <laughs> so it was it was like you needed a good Monday and needed a win. It was like go get that check from that first funeral right. home, and now that's my customer, and I'm spending all of my time trying to sell funeral homes and cemeteries on on social media content and and management. So it's just kind of interesting how God kind of weaved the funeral profession into the the first entrepreneurial, real legit business that was my go-to and it kind of prepared me for you know doing what we're doing now
1: well and it's cool because i'm sure you're like okay s- senior in high school you're playing basketball w- the funeral like funerals probably aren't on your mind at this point nowhere near <laughs> <it>. <laughs> like you didn't look ahead and be like you know what i'm gonna be in the funeral profession so i i mean i guess that just kind of shows that like you know whenever we're talking about something being a journey it's a journey that you don't always know the end of. That's right. And to the same point, we, I mean, you still have life ahead of you. So you still don't know maybe in five or I don't know, however many years you're looking back and being like, oh yeah, but I didn't know that by doing this podcast, I was going to get to this point. Um, so we're talking about you get started in the funeral profession for your father-in-law, you're working as a vault salesperson.
0: That's right. I was doing sales to funeral homes still, but but for the the burial vault company, in uh, establishing relationships. And the thing that I loved the most about that job was not that the the burial vaults. I mean, they are what they're concrete box. Like it's <laughs> it's not this extravagantly awesome product where you get all these things to talk about. Right. It was the conversations that I were have I was having with funeral directors where they're telling me problems that are happening in their business and my background of being on the website side and the marketing side and online marketing with banner ads. And, you know, this is year 2007. Now I'm going, Oh my gosh, like all my past experience, all the dots connect of Mm. these things would be valuable for these funeral homes. And so I went to my father-in-law and said, look like, you know, you hired me to sell vaults, but, my background's marketing and advertising, and I'm having all of these conversations with funeral homes where if they just were more approachable, it would fix ninety percent of the problem in their business outside of running the business itself from the just the communication side with excuse me with the consumer and so I started blogging about these conversations I was having with funeral directors and and how technology and the marketing and advertising and things could could solve some of those problems. And some of the things I was putting out were starting to stick and we we're getting followers that were in the profession. And, you know, my grand idea when I started this was, hey, if we can get enough followers, we can turn this and flip it into... Um, a social network for funeral directors hmm. and I could build the, at this point, Facebook was not a public like roll had not rolled out to the public yet. Right. Um, it was still, you had to have a dot edu email address and it really wasn't mainstream and it was just Harvard and Stanford and some of these West coast schools. LinkedIn had just gone, had just got a huge major investment. And I remember reading the article in the USA today, they had a $20 million valuation, you and I right now could probably go get $20 million to start a podcast. Mm-hmm. Like it's that easy to go get money that $20 million in 2007 seemed like astronomical for a technology company. Right. That's like, people will throw $20 million at an idea that's, you didn't even write on a napkin. You wrote it on like <laughs> the palm of your hand. So it's, it's crazy to see how that's evolved. But you know, that was my thought process and, so I set out to start a social network for funeral directors and, and quickly realized that that wasn't going to be the thing. You know, A year mm-hmm. later, Facebook rolls out to the public. Anybody can join. People were joining personally. Like, How am I going to get a funeral director to get off of Facebook to go to a dedicated network where they can just connect with other funeral directors, which they're right. already doing on a network? So now it's how do we leverage the network that's in existence to build out the process?
1: So we're seeing another pivot. Of like, yes. okay, so now you're in the industry that you're gonna end up being in and for the next 10 years or so. And we're seeing a pivot from, okay, so instead of creating this new social platform, I'm just gonna, I'm instead of that, I'm gonna become just the baller at getting these funeral directors on this other social media platform.
0: Yes. And I and I realized like my forte was not being the creator. My forte was leveraging the platform as somebody else created. Mm. And so I think that that's molded into You know the business, and you know as the founder, I'm not the creator of the technology. Like I don't know how to program, I don't, you know, some of these things. But like, let's take the technology that's available that everybody's using, and let's leverage it to to be beneficial. And so, you know, my father in law, I was lucky that he gave me the freedom to kind of operate and and create this blog and write about it and build an audience, build a personal brand, and get speaking gigs now because i took the marketing stance on on you know in in this what was going to be this network had morphed into more of a news publication and it was the only online news outlet or blog for for funeral homes and it scaled rather rather quickly with you know just piggybacking off of when facebook launched and connecting with funeral directors and writing content and building an email list and you know, sourcing email lists. You know, I I remember one night spending the entire night going through and researching every single mortuary school that I could find Mm -hmm. online and just scraping every email address that I could get and then emailing every mortuary school to tell them about the publication. And then I started just doing this. I would go town by town, scrape every email I could find for any funeral home. And once again, we're going back to that wrapper
1: sales. It is.
0: it, It was... It was the cold call, but now we're doing it through email. Mm -hmm. And I knew that if I sent 100 emails, I would get six people to subscribe. So I needed to send 6,000 emails to, you know, get 100, or I can't do math. That'd be (laughs) 600 subscribers, something like that. I don't know. Um, But it was, dude, it was, yeah, it was bonkers. And it's, it's, it's everything that I started doing at seven has had another variation of that all the way, all the way through. And so this publication, scales up, we get to a thousand subscribers in a year. Uh we get to five thousand subscribers in three years. And then we just take the paywall away. And there wasn't a paywall. It was more they had to put an email address and phone number and name to be able to see the content in its full entirety. Um so it was kind of that freemium model, even though we weren't charging. Open the doors and then the thing just exploded. And nice. We went from 5,000 subscribers to 15,000 subscribers within eight months. And, you know, it, w- it was on fire. I was getting asked to speak about marketing things at different funeral conferences. And, you know, it, there was another conversation with my father in law like, hey, this, this other thing now is, is starting to take off. And, and I'm starting to speak more and get into the marketing side. And that's really where my passion's at. And, Around that time I was kind of going I was on I was riding this high and was really starting to get confident. Like mm. to the point of the confidence was to the detriment of the relationships around me, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um it was an arrogance and it was I'm so smart, and I'm smarter than everybody else and you know, I'm looking at other business owners going, Hey, if you would just do this, this and this, you'd be more successful. Right. And, and that was creating friction in relationships that I had, and uh, I was on the road one day making sales calls for my father-in-law, and uh, a girl went left to center, was text messaging, hit me head-on. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm at probably the most cockiest stage I've ever been in my life, to the like where I'm not even a good father or husband at this point. Like every, I'm getting home from working for my father-in-law at, at four in the afternoon. I'm hunkered down in the basement till, you know, 7.30. Maybe I'll kiss the kids goodnight. I might stop for dinner. Most often right. I didn't. Wife goes to bed at 30, 10 o'clock. I go up, lay down. I sneak out of bed when she's asleep. And I'm down working until 3, 4 in the morning. Sleep for two and a half hours. Get up. Start the day all over. And was a bad father. Was not a great husband. Uh, it was causing problems in, in relationships. And, you know, I had... I had not turned away from God, but I really wasn't focused on that relationship Mm -hmm. at all. Like, you know, the things that I was doing and accomplishing were not because of what I was capable of doing it's because of what God was allowing me to do through the skill set. So, um, I'm in this accident, car flips over, I break my right femur three different places. And I remember just laying with the car flipped over kind of like in the cutout of, of the, uh, the, the sunroof and just going, all right, God. Okay, you have my attention. Like, all right, mm. what what do I need to do next? Like, like bring me back to reality. And it still didn't happen at that point. Like, right. things got a little bit lower before they hit rock bottom. But um, it's interesting. I forgot, and I was giving a, a presentation a couple years ago, and someone was asking me how, how Disrupt started and you know, when we launched a social media company. And I really forgot, like, the initial conversation. Um, I read, we we lived with my in laws for three months after my accident because I couldn't I was basically stuck on a couch couldn't move my leg couldn't go upstairs I was in this huge brace and just it was much easier my my wife needed help with the kids because they were only a year old and and two and a half
1: so just give context what year is this now this
0: is two thousand and uh, ten August of two thousand ten um, and I remember one night now that my memory has been jogged having a conversation with my wife and I said, Hey, I've been thinking like during the day I've been doing a lot of research and I can only really focus on something at this point for like 10 to 15 minutes because of the the pain medications and the things that I was on. And so we had a conversation. I told her I was going to start a social media company and I have no idea what, what her reaction was. I just, I don't remember. I, I can kind of place what it was and it wasn't one of like, that's awesome. Let's go do it. (laughs) It was, it was, are you kidding me? Like you have one business in this publication. You're working for my dad. You can't get off the couch. We like where I remember her asking the question of where are you finding the time? And I said, I have no idea, but I feel like I have to do it. And it it makes sense. And so she wasn't unsupportive, but it wasn't like we didn't have a pep rally and get all excited (laughs) about it. Uh, And I think that's, Another kind of takeaway of entrepreneurism is is or entrepreneurship is that it's not always you're not gonna have the cheerleaders that you think you're gonna have. Um my wife was supportive and the fact that she was my wife. Right. But my wife wasn't like, all right, punt every responsibility you have and go do this, and nor should she have been. Like mm-hmm. we were in a partnership my i was 50/50 50, 50 in this relationship with her and needed to be 100% in on that and i wasn't already wasn't holding up my end of the deal so um i ended up llc a social media company in january of 2011 so kind of working through that process doing a business plan uh in the 3 months that i was really kind of laid up and so that's when kind of disrupt started and a year and a half later um we had a couple clients. The publication was doing great. It was all focused on the on the funeral profession. The social media company was not. Like I didn't want anything to do with funeral homes because it was just a pro- too long of a process to get the money and get a yes and right. So it was fun to like work and you know we were working with um, one of the largest uh, southern retail brands, clothing brands that that's targeted at frat kids, uh, which was probably the funnest (laughs) i've ever had in social media Uh, we worked with the second largest microsoft partner in the united states um just a lot of big brands that it was fun and it was cool but there was a part of me that like what i really knew was the death care space and 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 that was the passion and i think that's kind of takeaway number three is that when you're starting a business if you start a business around something predicated on making money and you don't have a passion in it, you're going to burn out quickly. Yes, mm. the money may come and that's going to be great, but the longevity and your happiness is going to suffer. And believe me, the money was a thousand times easier not dealing with funeral homes. The yeses came faster. The creativity, we were the freedom to do content campaigns that were just off the wall bonkers was there. But I cared so much more about funeral homes that every part of me, when I developed content, looked at the applique of how it would apply in a funeral home. And so August of 2000, well, in May of 2012, left the family business, focused on disrupt in in the publication, uh, connecting directors 100%. That was the source of revenue Um, at that time period. It was not the appropriate time for me to leave and Mm. start a business um personally the income that had been generated from the publication was just play money like i had a salary we lived off of this was what allowed us to do all the travel and the things that we wanted to do and now it became the living money too Mm. we were broke we were one check away from not paying the mortgage and man, like nobody knew it but me. My wife didn't have a clue. And to her, everything was, you know, she gets worried when I start to say no and I wasn't saying no. And, you know, because I had enough confidence in myself that I would figure it out. And that was stupid. That was really stupid. Like, but that was the sheer cocky arrogance. But I think sometimes you have to have that confidence to be able to nut through some of the things that are, adversity and going to be tough and going to be hard and the nose and so we did it got a couple clients things started rolling um started hiring people started scaling and and really just the back of my mind was the funeral profession the funeral profession the funeral profession And in august of 2014 we went to the 13 clients that we had that were not in the funeral profession and said look at the end of the agreement we're going to You know, we're not going to renew and we're making a pivot in the business and we're going to focus on the death care companies. And my team was not happy. There were four of us at the time and it was uh, funeral home content sucks. This is boring. It's not
1: the most glamorous trade. No, it is
0: definitely (laughs) like when you're pitching that you're hiring somebody for a social media marketing company that is dedicated to the death care space you can't slap a bikini on that and make it look sexy right. in any way whatsoever. And so that was a hurdle. That was an absolute hurdle. And the other hurdle was we have an office and we have bills and we have salaries and how are we going to pay them when you know the, the path to a yes is months versus days when we're dealing with a funeral home versus a traditional business.
1: So you make that pivot once again I guess I'm just using the word pivot today because it's it's a pivot. It's very in your story. We're seeing a lot of this wherever you've like, it seems like early on you figured out, okay, sales and marketing. That's what I'm into. But then you keep on pivoting and making these hones, honing it into what it is now. So talk a little bit about that because you make that pivot into just the funeral, uh, profession. So what does that end up looking like?
0: So it's, it, it was, um, you know for for me the leverage was the publication because we had a dedicated audience that I could, it was my publication we could put out whatever we wanted to put out
1: so you were taking so, advantage of a tool that you had already built
0: yeah the in the tool that i had already built that was supposed to be the network <laughs> turning to the ace in the sleeve to build the marketing company and the platform that i needed to build a a, a solid personal brand and mm-hmm. that was really the key like i think the the key for us to be able to scale disrupt and the reason that we have been able to make the name disrupt work and become what it is in the death care space and kind of well known was the fact that we did a great job like without really understanding i did a great job branding myself Mm. and really the one decision that i made was i can't be like everybody else so when i was in the family business with my father-in-law and i made those sales calls i had to wear the suit and tie and take out the earrings and be clean shaven and look the part of a salesman that was going into a funeral home when i did my own thing i had created a video uh, like 2008 i think it was the first time i recorded a video and put it online and, and we had like a little over a 1,000 subscribers on the publication. I was still working for my father-in-law. It was a Saturday morning. I flipped on a webcam, had a T-shirt and a backwards hat on, and I think I threw, like, a blanket over all my kids' toys in the basement. <laughs> like, I wish I, – it's probably online still. I know it's online somewhere. I got to go find it. But it was just flipped on this grainy, crappy webcam, and I put out content. It was the first time that – Ninety-nine uh, percent of the audience that had been reading the publication and agreeing with every word that I was writing saw me. Okay. And when they saw me, it was like, it was like a bipolar reaction. Like it just flipped. They went from everything I said they agreed with to the immediately because of the way <laughs> I looked, I wasn't credible. Okay. And I remember there were hundreds of comments on this video of how can we take you serious now? You don't look like a funeral director. You're so young. You're backwards hat on. You're so unprofessional. And there was one guy and I don't remember who it is, but if it's you, like props to that guy. <laughs> that guy said, What is wrong with you? We've listened to this this guy for a year and a half spew all of this stuff that we've all been like I can go back two articles A week ago and half of you that said he's an idiot in this comment stream were praising what he had wrote in Mm. the previous and that was a really an eye-opener for me like it was awesome props to that dude for coming to bat i didn't really get on and and defend myself i didn't feel the need to but there was a trigger and i said okay this is it like this is the emotion whether it was hate or it was love triggered or the way i look triggered a reaction so from that point on when I did anything related to connecting directors, my brand, and ongoing with disrupt, I refused to wear a suit. And to this day, I've never went, wore a suit <laughs> to a funeral event um, in front of funeral directors. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I went completely as far as you could possibly go the the other the other extreme, and uh, I have clothes custom made in in California that are blinged out and holes and ripped knees and like just the punk rocker almost kind of right. look um i i call it like a a country club punk rocker a country club okay so it's there's like a, it. it's definitely not cheap clothing for one for two it's not sloppy it fits the brand mm. so it it's got some finesse to it um and that's become the identity and disrupt has taken on the identity that i had and everything we do when it, when a client hires us now they are banking on the fact that we're going to be vastly different, talk different, act different, suggest different things than anybody else in the profession. So it, it worked against me because there's still people that haven't hired us because of the way we look. But it's also now become so much of the identity. If I tried to revert from it, it would work against me. So um, I think that's kind of a takeaway number four of being an entrepreneur is finding your lane, like knowing to the core who you are, and it it relates to number 3 of finding the passion like once you find the passion and you know who you are like being able to 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 brand yourself and it's it's so easy to conform to whatever one client wants you to be or right. whatever one group of clients wants you to be and then then when you're with the other group of clients you're you're different it's it's way too hard in today's environment to be able to be multiple people like social media snipes out the 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 posers and you've got to be who you say you are and you've got to be able to own what it is that you stand for what you believe for and, and then your business has to kind of evoke that like i could talk one way online and then run a really shady business and it's never going to work because people are going to call you out as a fraud so i think that knowing who you are and, and staying true to that um is a a key for for success you can't be wishy-washy
1: and an important like takeaway for people listening to this and something that you've talked to me about is like that's the key is being who you are but so that doesn't mean people listening to this that doesn't mean that they're like they have to take on this the ccpr look you know they don't need to take on the country club hunk rock look they need to be who they really are
0: right right you got to find you you can't be me i can't Mm. be you i can't and I think that there's so many entrepreneurs now that are on a on a mainstream scale where as a growing entrepreneur you try to be like that person. Right. Oh um, that was a that was a complete fail that I made early on. Like I, I would listen to, you know, the Gary Vayner trucks and the Tony Robinsons and in the motivators and say, Okay, well they're working twenty three hours a day. Like I remember reading an article about um Sean Parker. And when he started Napster and even now um, with, with the brands that he that he owns and he runs, it, it was a Forbes article or entrepreneur article where they went through and like kind of like step by step what he did throughout his day. And he literally would only save four and a half hours for sleep. Mm. I'm like, yeah, that's what I got to do. Like, I I got to work 20 hours a day. Right. or This isn't going to be successful. And. That worked for Sean Parker. That's not meaning it's going to work for me. Like Gary Vee can cuss like a sailor. That's not going to work for my brand. Mm. Like that's not me. So, so things that that other entrepreneurs do that work for them aren't always going to work for you. And I think that that's a that's a failure that I had in the beginning trying to be like and talk like people that i just didn't map up against and and so when you really start focusing on doing you and doing the work you find your identity and who you are and what makes you tick and and you know are there days where i'll put in 20 hours yeah there's days where i don't sleep but you know i also have agreements with my wife of when i'm going to shut down and be home and and when i am home i'm home and when i'm at work i'm at work and try to keep the the two things like if I got a lot of things to get done, I just need to stay at the office longer and not come home because when I come home, the kids are in "Hey, Daddy's here" mode, not "CEO, Daddy's here." Right? Um, and and that's, you know, that that didn't happen overnight. That took years and years and years of of trying to figure out just what works. But you know, I think knowing who you are and and having the the audacity to own who you are, uh, and that identity is is absolutely an advantage and you can't be somebody else simply because what's working for them isn't always going to work for you
1: awesome that's great so i think we've kind of we kind of told your story at this point yeah yeah totally so now just for the people listening like they've heard this episode they're loving it why should they come back for the next episodes
0: yeah, so I'm, I'm. What I'm most psyched about this podcast is is the interviews and people that we're going to have on are all entrepreneurial and they're in different facets. But again, passion plays a part in everything that I do, and and I have a passion for fashion. Well, That rhymes. That's dude, good. Right? I like passion that. for fashion. Passion for fashion. Uh, I I love like street culture. I love shoes. I love like the Supreme brands and the off whites and how they can carve out these these just these brands that stay true to who they are. So we're really searching for for the entrepreneur that um, has created their own path. They failed multiple times to get where they are. But it's starting to take Like the first couple people that we've got on are all in the fashion or accessory fashion accessory. So one of the top luxury hat brands, um, one of the top luxury um, uh jewelry men's jewelry brands um the clothing company that makes all of my stuff, which is in a luxury high end category, so really excited um we've got a couple entrepreneur models lined up to be on the show to just talk about their journeys because you know as i've talked with them and looked at there there may not be another profession where you get told no and as harsh as the way you get told. <laughs> as a model because when you get told as a model it's not because you can't play the part it's because you don't look good enough <laughs> right or your physique
1: isn't your yeah f- yeah physique just give me 2 months to lose this much weight to come yeah. back yeah. like it's it's
0: a constant conformity to what the client needs and that's hiring you and man like that could that could whip you your, your confidence to the lowest point. So really cool. But yeah, this, this podcast is not as much about celebrating the successes as it is about looking at the origin story and the losses that it took to get where you're successful. Because I think that there, there are a thousand podcasts out there if you want to hear just about successful entrepreneurs, right. the entrepreneurs we're going to interview are, are successful in their own right, but I'm more interested in what it took to get there. And that's where we spend the bulk of our time. And And I think that that is important because everybody that I've talked with, there's something that we can learn from that conversation. Like there are takeaways that I get. I have become so ingrained as an entrepreneur and as an owner uh, of of a business and just like reading and listening to other podcasts and continually trying to learn that there's always something of value that I can take out of any podcast, any book. And, and it's, applicable. And that's really what I want to provide. Like I, I want I want to connect with cool entrepreneurs and hear the story. That that's what really drives me. And I want that story to be impactful for people who listen. I want to interweave kind of my experiences as an entrepreneur because I think that you know most entrepreneurs feel a responsibility to try to give back or be a mentor to another young entrepreneur or somebody that's starting because like, at the end of the day, and what you're going to hear as a trend through this this podcast is that entrepreneurship is one of the toughest jobs that you're going to do. Like, it is so easy to be critical of yourself. It's so easy to feel like a failure. It's so easy to fail. But I think the drive is, like, there's an excitement level, I think, that has to be inside of, entre- like, cold-blooded true entrepreneurs. There has to be an excitement level about the fact that it all could fail and know that do you have the chops to go build something else mm. if this does fail it's frustrating when it's failing right. it's frustrating when you have the ebbs and the flows and the just the, the things that you go through with business but you know there's a part of me gets excited about the fact that it's all on my shoulders and the buck stops with me and it starts with me, and the livelihood of 27 other people that are on salary with us are in my hands. And that's a heavy, heavy responsibility. And you can either let it choose to crush you, or you can embrace it and know that if this all goes down in a burning heap of pile, that I'll be able to find something else for those 27 people to do because we'll create something that's even massively more successful And in the, the, the thought of the potential to be able to do that is exciting. Right. So I think we're all screwed up a little bit as entrepreneurs (laughs) because you have to, you, you can't be feign of heart. You can't, you can't take it lightly. There's days where you want to just slam your head in the door and there's days where you can't high five enough people there's days where you don't want to go home because you got to tell your wife you lost the deal or you got to say, hey, that vacation we were planning might not be such a great idea right now. Or you got to look a client in the face and admit like, yeah, we screwed up. Like, here's your money back. We did we did you wrong. Like, the, those days are the worst. And so you can have the the crazy thing is you can have the ultimate high and the ultimate low within 20 minutes of each other (laughs) like it happens so it's crazy it's it's unpredictable um and that's what i hope to achieve with this podcast is just so the erraticness of, of entrepreneurs but the commonality of every entrepreneur and and the struggles and i don't know one single entrepreneur that hit a home run the very first time right and i don't know one single entrepreneur that didn't have to pick themselves back up because they lost it all or they made a mistake or they had to quit the what they were banging their head against the door to try to make something work, and, and realize that this isn't going to work. But we found something in the in the process that man, that really could work, and it's a completely different pivot, right? And I think you've pointed it out. We've pivoted a lot more so than I've even really ever thought back. So like articulating this, and it's probably the first time I really had this conversation out loud, especially recorded, right? But the pivot. I mean, I think that's that's a great topic. Like, maybe we should call this the pivot and not the napkin game plan. But <laughs> no, I mean, it's the napkin game plan because most of these stories begin sketching something down on right. a piece of paper or a napkin or at a bar or a conversation. And, and mine was at 6 o'clock in the morning, laid up, not able to move had to take a blood thinner shot that I couldn't give myself because I couldn't stab myself with a needle in the stomach. So my wife would have to set an alarm for six o'clock in the morning every day, come out and do it for me. And that's when we had this conversation like, Oh, Hey, I've been up all night and I kind of wrote this out. Like, I think I'm going to start a social media company. <laughs> so th- as crazy as that is, that's, that story is so common with right. every entrepreneur. So Yeah that that's what I'm most jazzed about, man. Like this is going to be a a wild dope ride. I have no idea where it's going to go. Like we literally have a couple episodes in the bank and then we're shooting from the hip from there, which is the entrepreneur way. So we're going to do it. So keep tuning in, appreciate it, share the episodes, um, or, and the podcast. If, if you find it valuable, if you hate it and you think this is a joke, please share it too. Like either way, love it or hate it. Like give us, give us some, 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 criticism give us some love let's, let's see it share it um give us feedback i'm psyched about it thanks eli for me like eli is a member of our team so just to kind of give you some context disrupt media is the brand that's the company we're a social media agency if you think of a traditional market agency we're that but social media right. and we work in the death care space Eli is one of our brand strategists and, and content writers. Uh, he creates a lot of my personal content through conversations and is a ghostwriter for me. Um, and I, I just grabbed him a couple hours ago and said, Eli, I'm going <laughs> to record this podcast episode and you got to jump on with me and make it a little more conversational or bore people. So <laughs> nice job, my man. Appreciate Thank it. You. Appreciate All right. It. Until next episode, y'all keep disrupting and, and challenge the status quo and and go cash in on your passion.